Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Defending the Faith, with a message titled, Church and State. So turn to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. So many things in life are politicized. Now, when I say that, I suspect that if you agree with what I've just said, you probably don't think it's a good thing. You know, politics in our day is a negative word. We think of duplicitous motives, backrooms, secret deals, unholy alliances. Many people don't think of it in positive terms. But government, well, that's a different matter. Unless you're an anarchist, you'll agree that human beings need to be governed. We need rules. Sometimes those rules are a matter of organization, such as, you know, the rules that tell us on which side of the road we're allowed to drive on. You know, other times those rules will protect us, as the laws that prohibit murder and theft do. Sometimes rules lead to the common good, such as the rules that mandate the education of our children. That's why we make a distinction between government and politics. See, for many, politics has to do with debate, conflict, jockeying, lobbying, things that get people into power. And that's when we talk about backroom deals and strategies that many of us don't like. See, my point is that even if you don't like politics, you're going to agree that governments need to govern. And that's their task. And as we will see, the Bible thinks that's their task as well. Because I'm doing a three-week series on apologetics or, or giving a defense to those who ask us for the hope that is within us, so I've got to acknowledge that one of the concerns that non-Christians sometimes raise is the interaction between the church and the state. You know, keep the church out of politics, people cry. There's not just a few people that feel that way. We want a separation of the church and the state. And there is, among many, the idea that the church is always politicking or trying to gain power. Some even fear the church. I mean, talk about what happened in the Middle Ages or what happened in the Spanish Inquisition, and for that matter, the fear of Sharia law and Islam, and we think of that which violates the rights of everyone who's not in full compliance. The idea of a secular government is the idea that, at least to some, that religion has no business in the halls of power. Religion needs to be relegated to a private matter and thus kept out of our schools and out of the media and certainly out of our government. And so, at least as it is with some, whenever the news media highlights a candidate that has evangelical support, it immediately strikes fear into their hearts and a determination to stop this from happening. They think Christianity and politics is a recipe for bigotry and the tramping on the rights of others. Furthermore, Christian involvement in politics is one of the, one of the prime reasons why many won't even consider the Christian faith. Now look, there, there are any number of frustrations and errors and sins when it comes to Christians in government. You know, I want to be the first to acknowledge that, but what I want to do today is first to define what the Bible teaches about this matter and then work out some of the legitimate ways in which Christians have tried to work this matter out. See, at the outset, even though if you're a non-Christian and you're listening to me today, and let's say you intend to disagree with everything that I have to say, could you at least hear me out? How should Bible-believing Christians interact with governments from the perspective of Scripture? So first of all, let's be clear with what the Bible says. 
Romans 13, 1-7 is the most extensive passage in our Bible that speaks to that issue. I'm reading it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear to the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, this passage must be understood against a background of the kind of government that existed when it was written. You know, Roman authority looked at the new religion, that is Christianity, with a great deal of suspicion. In a number of areas, open persecution and hostility against Christians had already broken out. And in time, that hostility would grow, and eventually, Rome tried to crush the church. And yet, Christians were still called upon to respond to their government in a respectful way. So first, Paul lays down two universal commands for all Christians. They are to submit to governing authorities, but they are also to understand the ordained limits of this command. That is, it has never been the Christian ideal that we're mindless robots doing whatever governments command of us. Rather, while we recognize the legitimate authority of government, we also believe that God's word and his laws have supremacy over the laws of any state. And so as an easy example, should the state forbid us from meeting together for worship, we would still find ways to continue to worship together in direct violation to government laws. Or if the government condemns us for teaching something that the Bible teaches, we will obey God rather than men. And while we do that, we do not lead a revolt against government itself, although if God permits, we would look for ways of changing a law that violates our conscience. But whenever the government passes laws that do not violate our conscience, well, we would seek to submit. So, we submit to government authorities, but also believe that there are limits to the legitimate authority of government. Now, from that premise come four very important biblical statements about the role of government. Statement number one, God puts governments into power at his will. God created both the idea of government and he also remains sovereign. So I'm saying he controls all events, including which government is in power. That's the reason for Paul's statements that whoever resists governments resists what God has appointed. The idea of government is God's idea. So an easy application. Whichever party is in power, whether we agree with them or not, that government deserves the loyalty of Christians. We're to pray for it. You know, I was recently in a church in India. In India, seeing the rise of intolerance towards Christians, and, and many have suggested that the Modi government could, but is doing nothing to curb extremism. And yet, there in the church, I watched as believers prayed earnestly that God would bless the prime minister and watch over him. They did what all believers are mandated to do to pray earnestly for those in authority over them. 
So again, statement number one, Christians believe that governments are put into power by the will of God. Now here's statement number two. Resisting government is resisting God. So at this juncture, it's necessary that we understand that disagreeing with a government policy or involving oneself at election time, even working to get the other party in power, that's not resisting government. In a democracy, that kind of activity is exactly in line with how our system works. See, electing another party into power, well, that's not an act of civil unrest. And therefore, it is not contrary to Christian principles for a Christian to be involved in politics. But, and I'm going to get to this, I'm going to say that it's, that it's not the job of the church to be involved in politics. Christian individuals, yes. The church, I think, no. One example of that will do. William Wilberforce is often given credit for spearheading the movement in England to end the practice of the slave trade. He was an evangelical Christian. That is, his Christian conviction that all human beings are made in the image of God directed his politics. Now, I applaud that activity. But while it's the mandate of Christians to involve themselves in all areas of culture, it's not necessarily the mandate of the church. Okay, governments are put into power through the sovereign will and permission of God. Resisting government in the sense of overthrowing legitimate rule of government, well, that is equivalent to resisting God. Now, statement number three. Governments exist to restrain evil. We believe that God has given governments the mandate to seek peace, order, and to uphold the principles of righteousness. Again, to be clear, we don't think governments are there to reinforce the Christian gospel. We would not want governments to cross the line and enter into the realm of the church. We think keeping lawful society is the mandate of government. And so finally, statement number four, governments exist to punish evil. Look, we do not believe that punishing evil is the purview of the church. That's very important. Whenever this line is breached, when the church takes government roles upon itself, the results can be disastrous. The Church of Jesus Christ does not wish for legal power to extend the gospel. There's so much more to say. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery. Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate. Dr. John Redekop is a retired political scientist, but he's also a committed Christian. In his book entitled Politics Under God, Redekop lays out a chart on the fundamental differences between political parties in the church. 
Now, I'm amending his list to make it a list to show the difference between the mandate of government and the mandate of the church. And so what are the differences between the church and the state? So first, the greatest virtue of the church is love, but the greatest virtue of the state is justice. A state may be compassionate, but when it tips the balance, what looks like compassion to some runs in danger of failing to provide justice to the victims. But that's not the concern of the church. Here's an example. Years ago, a group of illegal aliens ended up on boats on the British Columbia shore. My church was involved in bringing blankets to them and sharing the gospel. Here's what I said to our church. All of us have ideas of whether these men or women should be given the status of legal immigrants in Canada. But that's a matter of politics and not for the church. If God has brought these people here and God has created us as his church in this very place, we're going to do what we can to share the compassion and the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people. And that's the difference between church and state. We must never confuse or blur that line. The two are fundamentally different. Second, the greatest tool of the state is coercion. See, if you break the law, the state doesn't send an evangelist to your door asking you to reconsider your ways and consider the ways of God. Instead, the state sends an armed police officer to your door, complete with handcuffs, a prison cell to hold you, and a courtroom to judge you. In contrast, the great tool the church has is the power of persuasion. The church calls for men and women to repent of evil, turn to God, even warning of the great day of judgment at the end of the age and of the mercy that's found in the cross of Christ. The church and the state are given entirely different sets of tools. Let's look at a third difference. The source of authority for the state rests in a constitution and in a democracy with the will of the majority. But that's not the case in the church. Whenever the church functions according to the will of the majority, she confuses her role. The authority of the church is in the proclamation of the gospel and in the Bible as the final authority on all matters of faith and conduct. The church must proclaim what God has spoken and that his word is inviolable, unchanging, and fixed in the heavens. This is not the role of the state. Whenever a state acts as if its word is inviolable, it becomes not just a dictatorship, but it becomes a monstrous thing. Whenever the church functions as if it were a democracy, well, then she subverts her message, the message of the one true God. And so we find out that there is a very great difference in the source of authority of the church and of the state. Fourth, the issue is the issue of membership and loyalty. In the state, membership and loyalty usually happen in one of two ways, by birth or by naturalized citizenship. But however you become a member of a country, the country demands your loyalty. When it comes to the loyalty to your country, you are supposed to prefer your country over every other country. But it is here that the faithful church must exhibit a point of tension with their nation. The Christian church, when rightly understood, is Catholic. No, no, I didn't say Roman Catholic. I said Catholic. That word means universal. Listen, here's the implication. Our ultimate loyalty is never to our country. Biblical Christians can never speak of God and country as if that package easily belonged together. We know that it doesn't. 
That's because Christians have an unbreakable allegiance to Christ and then to the Catholic or the universal body of believers that make up the global church. The state may mandate loyalty, but for us, our brother or sister in Christ who loves Christ is faithful to Christ and lives on the other side of the globe and speaks a different language, eats different food, and has a different culture. Still, that brother and sister demands our ultimate allegiance. We will abandon our country before we will abandon our allegiance to the global people of God. For us, it's never God and country. It is Christ and his church. That's what interests us. And in that sense, All Christians have understood that there is a built-in competition between the church and the state. Both call for our ultimate allegiance, and for believers, our gate is set. We believe and know that the kingdoms of this world are temporal, but the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is eternal. Whatever the state demands of us, it may not have our ultimate loyalty. Now, having said that, we come back to Romans 13. It's not as if Christians offer no loyalty to the nations in which they find themselves. Indeed, we offer three things to our governments. First, we bind our consciences to civil obedience. We do not seek to overthrow civil governments. Governments must be given the assurance that even if the church grows to become a massive force in any country, we are not a political force. Second, we are committed to pay all forms of taxation. Romans 13 demands of us that we pay taxes. You know, it's one thing to claim legal exemptions that are offered to us by the law. It's quite another thing to hide that which is due the government. Third, according to Romans 13, verse 7, we owe government both respect and honor. And that comes in a number of ways. It comes in our commitment to continue to pray for governing authorities, but it also comes in our obligation to speak in honorable ways. You know, I think one of the great failures of the Western church is that this has not always been the case. When a government is in power, a government we may not have voted for, Christians are obligated by Scripture even to speak of our disagreements in respectful and honorable ways. You know, I remember writing a blog encouraging believers to pray for our prime minister and for his wife and for his children, and I mentioned them all by name. You know, To my dismay, a believer wrote me disagreeing with me. He said, do you know the policies this man is pursuing? Listen, if the rest of the political world is hopelessly divided and animosity becomes the order of the day, the very nature of the church's mandate is that our speech is seasoned with graciousness and and love and respect and honor and a willingness at all points to bless the people with whom we have political disagreements. We must be known for our gentleness and the language of reason as opposed to the language of passion. Now, let me switch topics, or better still, let me get back to a topic that I left unanswered that is the matter of the separation of the church and the state. I want to tell you a little story of the history of the church. And please excuse me, for it's a story of my own denominational background. As as many of you know, I was raised in a Mennonite church, and there is, in the history of the Anabaptist movement, an event that has never left me because of its importance. You know, the very basis of my denomination is the separation of church and state. The founders of the Anabaptist movement would not allow the civil authorities in Zurich, Switzerland, to decide whether they were allowed to abolish the mass or to have home Bible study groups or to baptize their members. 
It was Christ and his word, the Holy Scriptures, that had the authority over the life of the church. The state had no authority there. You know, for that, they were hounded and persecuted. See, that idea, which was the birth of my denomination, was the idea that the church is a community of believers, not an extension of the state. The state has no right to dictate the faith of the people. The idea of the separation of the church and the state is a Christian and not a secular idea. And by the way, that's not just the Anabaptist story. The Baptists in England have a very similar story in which they simply refuse to be a part of a state church. All Baptist statements of faith to this day have a statement that indicates just that. That's why a great many Christians do not want a Christian nation governed by a Christian government. We think that if that were to happen, the government would immediately subvert the church. Instead of making love and the cross and the saving message of Jesus to be the key, the message would become a compromised message. Yes, we want the right to influence government, but whenever the church and the state form into an alliance, it's not the state that loses. It's the church that loses. What the church loses is the power to proclaim the gospel free from political interference. And so for my non-Christian listeners, you might want to relax or you might want to be concerned. I guess it all depends on your perspective. You know, biblical Christians don't want political power, so relax. We fear it as much as you fear that we might grab it. But here's what might concern you. We do want the right to influence power. We do want the right to be the conscience of the nation. We want to speak to you that unborn children are made in the image of God that the poor and the disenfranchised need to be given a voice, that failure to protect the rights of people who are out of favor with political correctness is injustice. Yes, we want the right to speak, but we don't want the right to become the government. John, let me ask you this question. Is it possible that one of the struggles we're having in the church, even today in our culture, if they were allowing government or allowing state to have too much influence in respect to what we believe or what we do as the church. That's always going to be the case because uh, the government is called upon to govern. And as governments go, it does tend to have an influence on the social welfare of people. And so because we're a part of the state, um, we also will be impacted by what they do. But that's why I would argue that we need to fight for the separation of church and state. We need to fight with all of our hearts that would not allow the state to impact what it is we do teach and believe. Thanks so much, John, for your message today. And and join us again next week for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Everyone has a story. Your own story is not just about your birth, but your new birth as well. Jesus has granted you a story of life and of eternal life. Dr. John Newfelt has a series entitled Your Salvation Story. In these five messages, he unpacks the theological and practical implications of our redemption in Jesus. This month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free CD copy of Your Salvation Story with a special booklet to help you reflect on your God-given grace. With thought-provoking questions and scripture references, It'll help you to unpack and offer clarity on some of the misconceptions you may have about your own salvation. 
So to request your free CD series and reflection guide, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate, the reflection guide is available only as supplies last and more can be purchased for group use.